0: When you have these moments of scapegoating, right, of things that allow people to come together in a kind of shared attack, essentially, or or rejection of a particular person and a kind of driving them out, people just describe participating in these pylons as being these kind of incredibly fulfilling, satisfying, ecstatic moments of togetherness.
1: Welcome to the Conservative Curious Podcast, where we uncover niche thinkers at the intersection of philosophy, tech, and culture. I'm your host, Jessica Dang, alongside my friend and co-host, Ani Pai. In this episode, we talk to Jeff Schellenberger, writer and lecturer at New York University. He's also the creator of Outsider Theory, a blog that explores academic theories, conspiracy theories, and the concepts of the outsider. We discussed the two-fold scapegoating dynamic embodied in Donald Trump, the digital version of sacrificial rituals, and how we can forgive and forget in the online world. It was, I think I met you first on Twitter. I just remember when you started Outsider Theory And going to the website and seeing all these incredible essays that you write, which blend philosophy and tech and culture, which, you know, is they're all that's the intersection that we explore on our podcast as well. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your vision for outsider theory and what it's about.
0: So the outsider part in that sense is on one hand, the ways that theories have traveled outside of more narrow academic realms and like had broader influences. So like how people are using theory outside of the immediate place where it was incubated. Let's see. It's also about two other themes, one of which is kind of the outsider as the figure of the scapegoat and the sort of social function of the outsider. I'm interested just in that figure of the outsider and the way it fits into these dynamics. And then the third dimension, which is something I'm also super interested in, is like basically conspiracy theory, and specifically as they're developing and spreading in online spaces. And the connection, I guess, is that all of these have to do with the shifts that we're seeing in the circulation of information and the ways that that affects knowledge.
1: So about the scapegoat, which is something that you've written extensively about, Um, You actually had this piece called The Scapegoating Machine, which you wrote shortly after the 2016 presidential election, and it was interesting because in it you write that Trump's political program is based around scapegoating the other, like illegal immigrants and globalism, but you also write that scapegoats are typically contradictory figures. Do you think that Trump is also the left's scapegoat? Like, is he also a scapegoat and not just the person scapegoating others?
0: Yes, I sort of addressed that in that original piece as well, in that there was part of the argument that posited a connection between Trump and this idea of the scapegoat and the king. The idea is kind of complicated, but the scapegoat is both the marginal figure, the figure who's pushed to the edge of the society. But in the process of that happening, that's kind of what allows the society to coalesce. So what's interesting there is that if you look at the rituals of some societies historically, they would actually treat the figure who is going to be sacrificed to be treated very well. In fact, they would almost be treated like royalty. There's a very interesting accounts of the native peoples of Brazil that are some of the most richest accounts of this sort of thing, but but they would essentially be given a life of luxury for some time before being sacrificed. And then on the other hand, you have a lot of ethnographic evidence of societies that would regularly sacrifice their kings. So in other words, the king was essentially a sacrificial victim in waiting. And when the circumstances demanded it, the king would be sacrificed. And there usually would be a sort of priestly class that would decide when that was going to happen. So there's kind of this association between these two figures in all of these societies historically. And so the similarity is really that because of the scapegoats unifying function, that when people all decide this person is the enemy um, and needs to be destroyed in order for the society to be rejuvenated, they sort of, in a sense, turn that person who's also marginal into kind of the central figure of the society. So there's sort of a a theory that Peter Thiel talks about this, right, who was the other subject of that original essay. In his lectures, uh, you can still find them online, but this idea that basically you might think of the origin of kingship as the kind of sacrificial process that got sort of delayed and delayed and delayed because the sacrificial victim managed to use that position to gain a certain amount of power But then it was always at the mercy of the society potentially deciding it was time to finalize the process. That's a bit of background. But the idea in that original essay was that, yeah, I mean, Trump kind of serving that function in a complicated way, both being the one who essentially unified his enemies in this kind of intense hatred and disgust. But at the same time, who could also, because of the polarity of the politics, could then produce a similarly unifying function on the other side you know his campaign was kind of based on explicitly like naming enemies and sort of directing people's hatred or disgust towards them so he could serve that kind of dual function of both attracting the kind of scapegoating energies of a certain portion of the society and at the same time like directing the scapegoating energies of the other half of the political spectrum towards these others
2: i wanted to go back to one thing you said about unifying the enemies because I was reading this book recently, The Triumph of Christianity, and I was always like wondering, you know, why did it happen when it did, right? Because like religion is this very much like, it's not just a relationship between people, but it's a relationship between the time and epoch that it takes place in. And what I didn't realize was just a few hundred years before, all of those cults you brought up were just so prevalent, not even in the Roman Empire, but across the world, kings getting sacrificed, normal people getting sacrificed. At that time, it almost hit its peak of people who wanted a change. I guess they wanted to see a different way out and monotheism was already creeping, but there was like this societal shift toward removing all of that and getting back to the scapegoat of just like, you know, one god, one king, and not like 8,000 gods, 300,000 gods, 300 million in the case of Hinduism, but like one. That kind of, I, I think, served me really well looking at all this election stuff of oh, okay, maybe it's another shift in the same way right now.
0: Very much. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it's complicated because you see that process going on in various parts of the world where there was a kind of long period of civilization being multipolar and very um, fragmentary, both in the sense that like, within a given society, you would have this kind of proliferation of different cults and different gods. And then you had this kind of period of these different religious formations emerging that were cutting through all the complexity and offering something very simple and unifying. that That's kind of the this um philosopher Karl Jasper's concept of the axial age, which is like the age of axioms, basically. Instead of having religions that were based on practices, which were often extremely localized and rooted in these complicated traditions that accumulated over years, they were instead based on this set of easily communicable principles that could then be transmitted across vast distances. So you have Christianity doing that and later Islam doing that on one side of Eurasia. And then you have Buddhism doing that in a different form in Asia. There is this odd process of these missionary religions, right, that in a sense, are much more communicable, because you had all these religions that, you know, again, were often rooted in sacrifice. So that would literally mean there was a particular location, there was a particular mountain, that was where you went and sacrificed people, and then maybe animals. So the religion was really inseparable from that location. Then there's kind of a shift to the more abstract realm of axioms that can then be transmitted across vast spaces, right? So you then have Christianity spreading, you have Islam spreading, you have Buddhism spreading, really in the form of simple units of language that can be transmitted much more easily and can have this claim to universality.
1: Yeah, and I think that ties back to your earlier point about how These shifts that we see in history is due to the circulation of information. But to take a step back, scapegoating is tied to Rene Girard's mimetic theory, which is that humans imitate each other and there's something inherently violent about it. I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview of mimetic theory and how scapegoating is tied into that. It's a pretty
0: simple model. The the specific human form of desire is unimaginable outside of some kind of social relation because it's based on the fact that we're creatures who largely become who we are through a kind of process of acculturation, right? The things that most identify us are not things that we are born with, but instead things that we learn in some sense, right? So in order for that to be the case, we have to be basically imitative. We have to be able to look around us and pick up the things that are happening in the culture around us and start doing that too. It's not just sort of monkey see, monkey do in the sense of, you know, we see somebody doing a particular thing and we also do that. It's that we see that somebody wants something or has something and we take that as a signal that that is the thing that we should desire. So we we sort of learn about what we desire by looking at what other people desire and or have. The idea with that is that it's a fundamentally dangerous process because it means that we want things that other people have or also want. In other words, the things that we most want are going to be things that other people have. In some respects, this can be less of a big deal in, say, modern societies with like consumer goods where we can imitate each other through consumerism, right? We can see that so-and-so has the latest iPhone so we can go and get it too. There's not going to be a conflict between us. The problem is more when you have a sort of zero-sum situation, and often that would have to do with, for example, romantic rivalry, which is kind of where Girard derived the theory in the first place, was from how literature represented romantic rivalry. When you desire a person romantically, his argument was that there's always a kind of triangulation, that your desire for that person is dictated by someone else's prior desire for that person. So you end up with the sort of menage a trois scenario and romantic rivalry. But you can think about it in terms of position or status. The examples that I think of as most valuable today are like how social media dynamics work. It's like we want all these ridiculous things that don't matter at all. We want to have however many thousand followers or There's no way to actually define what they mean to us. And yet people desire them absolutely intensely, right? And they behave in ways that are often like borderline psychotic in order to obtain those totally trivial rewards, which are completely abstract and meaningless beyond the kind of rules of this particular game. So then what happens? Well, as a result of that, again, the social media space is my go-to illustration of this because it's so clear. People in this sense are intrinsically divisive set of relations with others, right? Because everybody is on these platforms, but I think you can map this onto society as a whole. The difference is on these platforms, social norms are much weaker, right? Because they're new and they're not governed by any clear longstanding norms that have been established. People want things that other people have. They're constantly riven with like envy and bitterness towards other people. It creates this kind of war of all against all scenario, which you just see in the form of just people like trying to own each other and dunk on each other and snipe at each other and things like that. So then the scapegoat function is the idea is there's sort of an ideal model of it that we don't actually see in reality, but we see a kind of faint echo of, which is basically that when somebody is selected as the evil person of the day or whatever then you you get this dynamic where suddenly like zillions of people coalesce in all saying that person is horrible, right? And kind of ritualistically denouncing them and so on. The John Ronson So You've Been Publicly Shamed book was kind of the first one that I think like covered the reality of this phenomenon in detail that you have these people like Justine Sacco, right? So she was uh, just like a random woman who like made a sort of clumsy joke that I guess was probably trying to make fun of racism, but was perceived as racist. It was just like a bad joke, but she only had a few hundred followers. But for some reason, a couple of journalists saw this. What's remarkable about the story is that it's a kind of snapshot of a moment, which is that she posted this joke right before she got on a plane. And then she was like in flight for 10 hours or something like that. And by the time she touched down, she was basically known across the world and hated like hated across the world. So the point is just that people are kind of driven apart by these dynamics, right? But then when you have these moments of scapegoating, right, of things that allow people to come together in a kind of shared attack, essentially, or or rejection of a particular person and a kind of driving them out, people just describe participating in these pylons as being these kind of incredibly fulfilling, satisfying, ecstatic moments of togetherness. So I think that's sort of the best modern illustration of how this works. And I mean, this is another topic, but you can make the argument that, like, in some ways, one of the things that modern capitalist societies have done is come up with ways of essentially isolating people socially. And one of the interesting effects of that is that it actually makes it harder for these kind of mob dynamics to take hold. Because if nobody knows anybody else and you're kind of in these spaces where everyone is a stranger, then you're much less likely to form a mob with those people.
2: In primordial times, a scapegoating mechanism felt really cathartic, right? Like you could watch somebody getting killed in front of you and you're feeling this catharsis, literally, right? You feel together, you're not the one there, so you feel just way better about yourself. But in this case, what I see is that there's no scapegoat, not even Trump, that is cathartic enough to stop it. It's like you just move on to the next person, right? You get rid of Harvey Weinstein, who's next. And there's not even a second of respite there's no end to it. It's like the perpetual scapegoat machine where you just immediately go on to the next thing, because that doesn't give you togetherness in an online sense. Like, I don't feel close to Jess if we take down some other major podcast. That's not how it would work. And we wouldn't feel better. We'd probably just feel a lot worse. So what do you think about that? And I know Gerard could never have predicted this, but how do you think that plays out in a deeper online age?
0: So I think he would say that there's a sort of bad conscience in modern times. You know, you, you can sort of engage in these things, but ultimately, if, if you look across history, you can find these kind of events where people would gather in public squares and like watch criminals or it's a famous example at the beginning of Foucault's Discipline and Punish. So it's like a description of this public evisceration of this guy who tried to murder the king. I mean, people would watch people being like torn apart basically in public, just watch these like absolutely horrifying acts of violence. And seemingly there was a kind of catharsis, as you said, people actually kind of enjoyed these spectacles. Not that horrible things don't happen, but there's a greater kind of embarrassment or shame about the idea of enjoying a horrible act of violence against someone en masse. I think similarly, people engage in these kind of behaviors, but at the same time, they don't quite feel right about it. Like on some level, I think there there's a kind of undercurrent of bad conscience. So then the question is kind of where that comes from. Girard's answer is basically, if you look at the evolution of religion in general, but specifically Judaism and Christianity, sort of deconstruct this process, right? His position is they they sort of show how the scapegoating sausage is made and in that process kind of demystify it. A simple example is um, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph is a scapegoat, he argues, right? Um, So his brothers kind of gang up on him and essentially sell him off into slavery, then pretend that he's had an accident befallen him and lie to their father about what they've done. But then Joseph, he turns out okay. He's scapegoated again by Potiphar's wife, who accuses him of having tried to rape her you know, again, he's vindicated. So Gerard's idea here is that these are the same kind of stories you find in myth. He compares Joseph's story and in, in Potiphar's wife to Oedipus. It's kind of complicated, but his argument is that pagan myths show the scapegoat to be guilty, right? They say the scapegoat actually committed incest. The scapegoat actually did some horrible thing and therefore deserved to be expelled, blinded in the case of Oedipus, killed, whatever. So the idea is that the biblical stories kind of show the side of the scapegoat and and show the scapegoat to be innocent of the various things that they're accused of.
2: Um, well, Gerard, Gerard makes it kind of clear, really, that it's Christianity that began this empathy for the individual. I think back, as we were discussing with the triumph of Christianity, that the cross was actually a very divisive tool because it was used for slaves, was used for like the worst you know, if you had a cross before the death of Jesus, you were just shunned from the society automatically because it showed it's like pedophile symbols now, right? It was that bad. But after the execution, after the resurrection, it became like a symbol of wow, like of hope, right? Of things that we don't know are possible, but actually happen, supposedly. Since then, you know, everything changed, right? And then it became like uh, Constantine and every other great emperor who took on Christianity. Like Gerard uses the point that actually now look at how much aid we give to developing nations. That's not something that we do just because we want to. That's like a Judeo-Christian faith thing of giving back to society. You know, his
0: argument is that it came out of these narratives, right? The, The biblical narratives, that they offered the perspective of the victim rather than the persecutors. In that sense, they offered this perspectival shift. And then the argument is that even though people still behave in these ways, right, because it's just kind of hardwired into the way human societies function, His claim is that it kind of makes it impossible for it to function in the way that it historically did. People kind of continually revert to these tendencies, but then his argument is basically in order to believe in or to accept these kind of violent mob dynamics, you have to construct these myths that sort of hide the victim's side, right? But his argument is that the the impact of these narratives is this kind of, you know, it creates this kind of acid bath that gradually dissolves all of those kinds of myths and makes them impossible to sustain
1: that's kind of the paradox of the, the, the scapegoat then, right? Because it's someone who's innocent, but who is treated as if they're guilty.
0: Yeah. And then there's also the question of what innocence means, right? Because if in some sense, no one is truly innocent. I mean, the, the simple point would be, if you just look at the kind of crap that people accuse the people they want to turn into the bad guy, like online, for example, Clearly, the people are generally, even if they're not the greatest person or have some flaws, they're usually not guilty of the things that they're being accused of.
1: I think Nicholas Sandman is a really great example, too. They had this video that comes out with his face, the MAGA hat, the smirk, and just the way that it's set up. He was primed to be the scapegoat. Then the evidence comes out that shows a different picture. And then he's vindicated in his lawsuit against CNN.
0: I mean, it's a good example of this, right, where the passions of that moment, right, where like, you have very prominent journalists basically saying they wanted to commit violence against him and stuff. I mean, it was nuts. (laughs) And I mean, literally, like for a facial expression. And it's interesting because you can kind of see the way the myth was constructed and then relatively quickly dissolved.
1: Gosh, I just wonder if scapegoating is a necessary function for society to unify because in your essay, you say that Gerard thinks that we need to transcend the scapegoating machine, whereas Peter Thiel says that it's necessary.
0: I mean, I'd say this is kind of where I would see the weakness in Gerard's position, which is that he has a few different answers to this. Part of his position is that if you want to think about like the evolution of the criminal justice system you kind of have to think about it in part as the attempts to create some bulwark against mob dynamics. Things like the presumption of innocence, as like the Sandman case shows, our tendency is not to presume innocence, right? It's the opposite. So there needs to be a strong principle to kind of counteract that. So, I mean, on one level, there's the idea that those kind of mechanisms are in place precisely to combat those kinds of dynamics, at the same time, I don't think Gerard in particular like really developed that in great detail. He kind of just like mentioned it in a few places. Teal's also pretty ambiguous.
2: You know, I have, I have something I can add there. So one of my friends was talking to him a few weeks ago, and he said this thing that we're in a politics bubble right now, mm-hmm. where everything that you even try to talk about science, history, philosophy, literature, all of them stand idle as like politics just comes in and it just destroys everything. And you just have to stand by and watch as like every profession is politicized. Physics even is now a white supremacist activity, right? If people didn't know, now it is. So that's like a recent event. And so what I thought was like, if that is true, then it's also true that like politics is almost treating every other field as as its own scapegoat, Mm. right? So if it's at the top, it just goes after all of these various fields like, okay, what you're doing doesn't solve Trump right? How often do you hear that? What you're doing doesn't solve, like, how do you not care about politics, right? And that doesn't solve the issue because you can't fix a fractured society, as many people like to say, with more politics. Like that, when has that ever fixed anything, right? You have to go back to the roots, the first things, reclaim the stuff, get back to a sense of growth and people doing stuff before you fix this. And so that's why I almost think that politics is like scapegoating everything else. It's like the ultimate scapegoater.
0: I do think that's one of the most dangerous things today, the sort of expansion of the field of politics. One thing that I've been struck by is if you look at any sort of public opinion research and things like that, it's very clear that like the vast majority of relatively underprivileged people, they're increasingly politically disengaged, right? They actually are just tired of the whole spectacle of mediatized politics, because they realize that it's not doing anything for them. It's largely, again, this kind of monster that's about feeding itself and is not actually about improving anyone's lives. I would actually argue in some ways it's a hopeful sign indirectly, because it shows that there are actually a lot of people who recognize how sick this whole system is. It's really about absorbing as much as it can into its sphere of influence and trying to destroy anything that falls outside of it.
1: Maybe it doesn't end because we are in a digital age and you've talked in your essays about algorithms and how they're designed to incentivize us to continually find reasons to hate each other. Where maybe in the past, it was a salve for an ancient tribe to sacrifice a virgin and then they would have peace. Now the algorithm plays a role in perpetuating this outrage cycle and to keep Facebook and Twitter and everybody getting the cha-ching, you know, add dollars. Yeah,
0: that's what's very strange about it. Part of the way I think about it is that these, you know, certain of these more prominent platforms, they just figured out things about how to kind of hack into certain dynamics, right, and and use them to um, perpetuate themselves.
2: Have you noticed that like every major tech platform is actually using one of the major sins in the Bible? They feed off greed, Mm -hmm. they feed off hatred, and you just pick one right? You just, if you're starting a tech startup now, I'm just like, okay, which one is this? And if it's one of them, if it's three, you know, you've hit the jackpot and you're just like Facebook, right? It's just like a continuation of the cycle of like, oh, screw this person. I'm going to do this to them. I'm going to like this picture, right? So it has everything all in one. So we have told our smartest people that if they sin and help other people sin, you'll make a lot of money.
1: I wonder when scapegoating became a thing in the public sphere.
2: Around 1970 and stuff. Scapegoating itself just became so normalized in the Nixon debates. It was just such a casual thing to do to people, which before that, it was like super shocking, right? You weren't ever supposed to treat people that way. And then after the rise of TV in the 70s, it just became the norm.
1: Yeah, but I'm just wondering when it started taking on the digital form, was it circa 2008 with the whole Gawker machine
0: Gawker is very interesting because it, it was the f- one of the first platforms to recognize the way that envy and resentment were drivers of attention and to kind of monetize that. So a lot of its original approach was just about identifying these sort of scapegoat figures or these kind of objects of envy who could then be taken down or dunked on or whatever.
2: To everyone who was embroiled in it, it was like literally the scapegoating machine as a service.
0: The original social context of it was, it was written by these people who were kind of marginal and who were figuring out that there were a lot of other people who were like of similar status in New York who would just enjoy seeing them dunk on these bigger deal people. On one hand, it was was this way of enjoying and getting like pleasure and fun out of your marginality. But then as it became bigger and bigger, it ceased to be able to present itself as like the underdog, right? Because in a way it was like quite powerful. In some ways, I think it died because, I mean, obviously, the proximate cause was Teal's lawsuit, you know, the Hulk Hogan lawsuit and so on. But in some ways, it died because it it merely, like, anticipated stuff that everybody ended up doing on social media and, like, refined them into an art. You know, just all the kind of dunking and owning and stuff that then, like, kind of just became democratized and, like, everybody could do it social media just became like the space where everybody could do that. So, so in a way, they were kind of victims of their own success.
1: Well, the scary thing is that the scapegoating machine, even though we're talking about it in a digital context and how social media platforms are designed, it's spilling over in the real world now. It's merged.
0: That's kind of the next step. If you think about like the guy who was going around repeatedly accusing women of being racist towards him or whatever... Basically, he was shaping his real world behavior around the idea of building clout by posting these viral videos. But that's an example of how it spills over, right? When, when these behaviors are rewarded in the digital space, then people will start doing these things in their lives so that they can then report on them in the digital space.
1: I have your essay here. It's called A Human Sacrifice in the Digital Business Model. And the person you're talking about is Carlos Dillard.
0: Right. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I remember seeing a video that he did, and it just turned into this crazy incident where the online world and the real world collided.
2: So if you look at like what happened yesterday, I don't want to make this too topical, obviously, but just, you know, because it relates so well into what we're talking about, like Jess is saying, everyone was talking about the Trump and Biden debacle that happened. And they're like, how can people act like this, right? This is such a reflection of America. What all those people miss is that it's not a reflection of America, it's a reflection of online culture that's playing out in the real world. Mm -hmm. So the behavior that's reflexive is that, oh, I do this online, people love me for it. Like my tribe loves me for it, right? They just feed off this frenzy of like the Schmidian, like us versus them. And then they do that in the physical sense of like, you know, what did Trump say, like, you're number two, Joe, like, that's just such a online response, right? Mm -hmm. And that behavior is not something that's American. Like It's not an American thing. If it's in Europe, it's not a European thing. It's an online thing that plays out in the physical sense of like, I'm just going to destroy this person because that's what we do online. When we don't like somebody, we just destroy them.
0: Right. So the reward structure is set up so that that's just how people intuitively understand they should approach their interactions with others and
2: Every leader we have going forward is gonna act like this because that's how it works in the online sense. And I was talking earlier about, you know, the end of the public internet. This is one of the reasons why. Because you'll make a deep fake that's gonna attack somebody and you'll have all these fake bots like they do now for notable people. You're just getting attacked by bots, by Hillary bots, by whatever (laughs) bots, and all the stuff that we see online, you know, might just end up being like this continual, like you never get a break from the scapegoat and you're always a scapegoat and you're always scapegoating somebody else.
1: So, Do you think that the future of social media is that it's going to splinter into private communities?
2: Oh, definitely. Like 100%. I mean, it's already happening.
1: See, I don't actually think that splintering off into all these private communities actually makes a difference because you're just going to keep fracturing and fracturing society Because the dynamic is still there, no matter how many times you try to escape it, you end up just eating yourself from the inside, don't you? I think
2: so. Like, I call it like the Bolshevik and Menshevik case. For people who don't know, like in the beginning of the Russian Revolution, um, the Bolsheviks were like super extremists, right? They were like your anarchists, highly violent, take no prisoners. And the Mensheviks were a bit more to the center center left. And the Mensheviks just got destroyed because that's that's how these things work, right? You either fit in, you're with me or you're against me. Extreme behavior always wins, just like in religion, right? It's always the extreme religions that drive out everyone else. And so that's what I'm seeing with social media right now, which I'm sure Jeff would also agree is something where if you're not Antifa and you're not a white supremacist, your opinions just don't matter.
0: I think that's generally true. It's always astonishing to see just the total morons and totally pathetic, craven idiots who have like zillions of followers and stuff, right? I and mean, it's just terrible. That's the one thing that like depresses me most is just seeing the people who are rewarded for this kind of stuff. When I'm talking about politics, I'm really trying to talk about it in an almost ethnographic way. I'm, I'm really trying to look at it as a distance and detached of an observer as I can. i um, like, that's kind of my aspiration. That entails not feeding the sort of culture war, but instead trying to step outside of it and say things about it. What I usually find whenever I do that and like anything I tweet gets traction, then there's a certain percentage of the replies that are basically just trying to drag me in. They're basically saying like, you have to take a side. And I'm very interested in this kind of binary structure. This guy, Justin Smith, who has a newish substack, I think, referred to this as eliminationism. The idea is really just that everything has to either be thumbs up or thumbs down plus or minus, and everything else has to be eliminated in some sense. What's left is sort of being able to use these larger platforms to form smaller groups of like-minded people who you can have more interesting conversations with and learn things from. But when they're public platforms, you have to deal with all the other idiots and fanatics and zealots who are coming in and just trying to force you into some kind of box. When you look at like the smaller and more localized communities that you can then kind of form with the people you find through that process that can offer a kind of respite from that (laughs) sort of that kind of pressure, which can be just very exhausting and depressing.
1: If you think about it, the scapegoating machine, to start it up, you need some kind of moral indignation. You need someone to be the first stone thrower. And who is that person? Like, what is the profile of the first stone thrower?
0: The way that I talked about it in that human sacrifice piece was this like threshold model that was used in the um, Mark Granovetter's accounts of riots and things like that. And the idea is that there's a spectrum of thresholds. So there are people with a very low threshold who are willing to take risks, right? Who for whatever reason are predisposed to do things like, you know, pick up a rock and throw it through a window or throw it at a cop car or whatever, right? And then the majority of people are not willing to do that without any kind of prior model. And this is why it's the Grenevetter, even though he, as far as I know, has never said anything about Girard. I mean, it's very similar, right? Because the idea is that the vast majority of people, they need a model, right? They need somebody else to do it first. And once one other person has done it, the people who have a slightly higher threshold can also do it. And then once they've done it, the next group of people, and finally, the people who would normally be most averse or reluctant to that kind of behavior, are eventually going to be drawn in, right, as the crowd sort of grows.
2: So what I would say there is like the person who is likely to cast the first stone is probably a person who is liable to be scapegoated themselves.
0: Yes, exactly.
2: Which is that if you don't do it to somebody else, Mm -hmm. people will come after you. I'll just bring up an example. So have you noticed that it's always the politicians who are so homophobic who always end up being gay? It's because, you know, if they're actually truthful to any observer, it would be like, Okay, and now it's become a meme, right? Like every time somebody does that, you can guess. But back in the day when somebody would do that, they would just place their own angst, their own hatred of themselves, I guess, in some perverse way onto somebody else and make them the, like, this person's gay. It's not me, right? It can't be me. Then they pretend to be hyper hetero.
1: As a more benign example, in elementary school, there was always that whoever smelt it, dealt it. Like whoever said, like, (laughs)
0: somebody farted. Exactly. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. No, totally. Um, Right. So so it's like the person who on some level recognizes that their risk taking disposition exposes them. That means that they also are going to be attuned to their need to deflect a certain kind of attention from them. Right. By by directing it at somebody else. Right. So totally. I mean, I think that's (laughs) I think that's really clear. There is a kind of process by which some of these people who serve as this first stone thrower will often then themselves become the kind of victim of a pile on later.
1: I don't know if you guys have watched this Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. Not yet. But
0: it's on my Oh
1: way. my gosh. Basically, they unpack and show you exactly what these tech companies are doing in terms of algorithms and how they're generating clicks and selling Discord. They're showing you exactly what they're doing and the data that they have on you. But still, the people who've worked at these companies, knowing all of this, they still fall prey to it. Mm-hmm. You would think that, gosh, if, if everybody in the world just realized that we're being psychologically manipulated, maybe we'll wake up and we'll all disconnect from the system.
2: 500 years ago, there was a literary dilemma, which happened with the printing press. I think this is where this all starts, this brainwashing, like scapegoating thing. Like starts with the advent of the book. When the printing press with Gutenberg came out, the biggest book, like the biggest printing of the book wasn't the Bible. It was actually this book on witchcraft. And it was used as a way to signify these witches versus everyone else. Because everything that happened in those times, it was like the devil stealing your kid. Everything was an act of God. And witches were the exact example of the devil, right? So anything that bad happened was a witch's fault. And so the printing press was first used as a way to uh, oppress a different group, right? Random witches, like people who they believe to be a witch. If you were a woman and you cheated on your husband, you were thought to be a witch. You thought you were thought to have the devil inside of you. And so it's funny when we talk about the social dilemma, because to me, it's every new technology is just used as a way first is a tragedy and then as farce. But in this case, it's like a propaganda and then a scapegoat.
0: Yeah. And I mean, often people think that the witch hunting was sort of a medieval phenomenon, but The real heyday of it was the early modern period, right? This period of transition when these new technologies and these new kind of social formations were emerging. In other words, the witch hunting was kind of a symptom of modernization, really. 100 or 200 years later, they were already being pointed to as just this totally barbaric and horrible practice. That kind of goes back to this, like, bad conscience about scapegoating, right? That these practices kind of come into play, but then they gradually subside because there is a kind of inability to sustain the belief in the guilt. And so like the Salem witches are like a good example, right? That they were pretty much like exonerated.
1: So it seems like we're in this heightened state of scapegoating, but how do we diffuse it?
0: I think there are two levels to my answer. So on the personal level, I think you can unplug yourself from these dynamics. And again, I think it's important to read about and think about the things that we've been talking about. We can see versions of these kinds of group social dynamics, mob dynamics in various contexts across history. In a way, they're new. In a way, they aren't. In a way, they're very old. For me, studying that and reading about it has been a way of gaining, again, this kind of ethnographic perspective on this moment. And then on the larger level, I would say part of the problem is we're just witnessing a transformation that's comparable in many ways to like the printing press. It's very hard to see exactly where this is leading us. (laughs) So I would say that I think it's important to have values as well. Part of the problem is that we have all these social norms that are sort of operative in our in-person interactions and so on that because online is still very strange and new and functions in different ways, we don't have an equivalent set of norms. And actually, as we were saying before, I think in some ways, the the kind of chaos that that's induced and the, the kind of reversion to these sort of scapegoating patterns is then spilling out into the offline social world and influencing it. So, I think being concerned about having values and norms that in some way we regard as transcendent or essential for having a functioning society and trying to decide in some form, whether regulatory or political or cultural or a combination, that we want to gravitate towards those values and norms. But that to me is very abstract. Like, I don't I don't think I'm proposing anything.
2: So I have an idea. I have, I have one interesting way. So... To begin, I think people should kind of know that physical life is actually profoundly, even in the West, it is baked in with all these like religious norms, right? Treat people nicely, give homeless people money. Mm -hmm. Uh, You talked about the criminal justice system of, you know, giving the victim the presumption of innocence. So all these things are baked in, like we've worked on it for like hundreds of years, if not millennia. But online culture is profoundly atheist. Yeah. Like there is no, there's no... Any of that baked in, right? It's all brand new. It's anarchy. It's like take whatever you can, forget everyone else, like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So if we believe that, I think the only way to fix this, and this is kind of why I've been getting more into like media anthropology of studying the various technologies that brought us to this time, because it's in, even in the way they're designed that facilitate this behavior, the way the network's designed, the way the internet's designed, your phone's designed. All these different things lead you to one area, which is you know, captivate your attention. Like Jonah Pretty says in his dissertation, of deterritorializing everything and making it all about capital. But I think there's a better way, which is that the better way, in my mind, would be that you kind of have to start fresh here and take this profoundly religious experience of modern life and bring that into technology and give it those social norms of like this is how you're supposed to act in the way that you design these things, because the internet as it is now. It was never made for that, right? It was never made to treat people nicely and to worry about social norms. It just became the monster that just ate everything until it ate itself. But I think in this way, if you start fresh and you have these ideas in mind, when you're going out and you're building these various systems, I think that might be the only way to fix all this stuff. When you design these systems in a different way, I think that'll be the solution to all these various abnormalities that we see online.
1: The whole point of the Bible is that It explores all these different scapegoats, and the final scapegoat is Christ, and He is the ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The message is hate the sin, but not the sinner, forgiveness, everyone can be redeemed. You know, all of this is lost today, and that's why the cycle keeps going, because nobody is seen as redeemable. It's cancel culture. Once you're canceled, you're out.
2: There's no second chance online is what I'm trying to say, which makes it profoundly atheist because atheists don't really believe in second chances. It's like not baked into the culture. It's like you've done something and there's no redemption for you. I mean, that's what it is, right? There's just no redemption. Like there's no nothing beyond this life. It's just you've messed up. Now that's it. It's like, it doesn't matter what you do, right? That's that's what it's saying. It's like, no matter what you do, nobody will remember your actions. And that's like the scientism that people talk about. I think that's not a good way to design the internet because that makes you, if you were to live like you were going to die tomorrow you would act in the way that we're seeing online now of you would just destroy everybody you would like treat them like crap yeah. you know but if you treated it like okay there is redemption there is something after this you would look up instead of looking side to side and you would focus on what experience do i want for my kids a thousand years from now online and no one designed systems that way right people across the world now are kind of seeing like you have to take that mindset if you want to do something great i mean look at like um St. Peter's Basilica, right? Like, what is that in the online sense? Like, what is this digital St. Peter's Basilica? I don't know. But I think a lot of people could figure that out smarter than me.
0: I think the, you know, it's sort of related to the forgiveness question or redemption question, because it has to do with time. There's like this, you know, complicated relationship between like what it means to forgive and to forget. And then there were these debates about like the right to be forgotten, specifically in terms of like the European, European law. One of the things that cancellation or something like that can mean is that this sort of paper trail of people saying bad shit about you just kind of persists online forever, or something that you've done just kind of, you know, stays at the top of your Google results. And so that in some sense, is sort of a similar, or at least related problem to what you brought up, right, which is that it doesn't account for the whole of a human life. The fact that someone for some mistake they made when they were young or something like that, if it even was a mistake or just something perceived as a mistake, can sort of be burdened with that for life. And that, that's like an infrastructural problem like that's built into like the architecture of how the technology works. The sort of lack of forgiveness is actually built into the, the platform in some sense. And so what, what that says in part is that these technologies, they're also kind of designed towards the present in terms of individual people's lives and they're not designed towards the fact that all individuals have a sort of arc of their lives, right? And so the result is that if there's some bad present that you get caught up in, right, that, that in some way causes some terrible blow to your reputation, then that can just stay with you as this burden you carry throughout life. The whole system is built to encourage cancellation in that sense because people know that if they can get enough clicks on some negative take on some person, then that will stay with them forever.
1: The real world has become a portrayal of the online world and not the other way around. It'd be interesting to see if we could re-envision the internet and incorporate the more mysterious aspects of life, like the sometimes very long arc to forgiveness and redemption. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked this episode. To read Jeff's writing, visit OutsiderTheory.com. And to keep up with his cultural commentary, follow him on Twitter at Daily underscore barbarian. And don't forget, we're on Twitter too, you can follow Conservative Curious at C O N S E R V Curious. And to be notified of new episodes, add your name to our list at conservativecurious.com. Until next time, stay curious.